0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect official policies or position of the Church of England Pensions Board, any other organisation, employer or their employees. And now, on with the show. It's a sunny Wednesday in July and while much of Europe disappears for summer holidays, we wanted to give you plenty to listen to on your beach staycation. We're going to be Talking Responsibly. And welcome to yet another episode of Talking Responsibly. I am your host for the day, David Hickey. And with me, as usual, is my co-host, Adam Matthews. Adam, how are you enjoying this Scottish summer?
1: It's tremendous so far. I've been swimming in locks in um, the mountains, and there's even still been a bit of snow on the top of the odd mountain and been in the locks of the kids, which I never thought. So it's been beautiful, stunning weather.
0: Stunning weather. It's, it's funny, you've, you've only lived here about 18 months in Scotland, yeah. and you've uh, you've but had uh, two good summers, which is about as many good summers as we've had in the last uh, 15 years. Um, but, <laughs> I, I, you know, I... I kind of look around at the weather that we're getting and the weather that's happening elsewhere in Europe and in North America and wonder if, you know, this is the thin end of the wedge on uh, on climate change. Uh, and, of course, that can be, for certain areas, quite a pleasant thing because a slightly warmer Edinburgh is uh, is very nice. But for our colleagues and friends elsewhere, it's uh, not necessarily as welcome.
1: Yeah, not very true. But, I mean, it's also interesting that a city that is used to rain has in the space of those 18 months I've lived here, has had two very severe rain showers that have led to extensive parts of the city being flooded. So a city that is well-equipped to deal with um, living in continuous rain isn't fit at the moment to deal with sort of those intense bursts that you're seeing. So yeah, I think that's the problem of adaptation we're going to face in cities like this.
0: Yeah, it's the uh, the problem of storms. We, we can have a lot of rain in Edinburgh, but to, to have a month's rain in a day... Um, it, kind of screws up any city, um, but we're going to have to learn how to deal with that. Anyway, I could talk weather with you all day because (laughs) I am uh, British, uh, and that's what we do best. Uh, But I'm going to bring in today's guest. Now, today's guest spent uh, 24 years as a leader and manager in the British Army before moving into the energy industry 13 years ago. Uh, First working with uh, E.ON, uh, he accompanied the firm's fossil fuel assets uh, in the switch to Uniper, where in 2019 he became Chief Operating Officer and jointly Chief Sustainability Officer. Uh, listeners, uh, please welcome uh, Unipus' David Bryson. Hi, David.
2: Hi. Hello, David. Hello, Adam. Nice, to, nice to join
0: you. Now, you, you, that's a, a very uh, British accent from a man that uh, is the Chief Operating Officer of uh, a German uh, utility company and based in Dusseldorf.
2: Yeah, it is indeed. But we're a global company. To be fair, we're, we're not. You know, we're based in Germany. We're on. We're, on the, we're listed in Germany. But uh, this company is full of all sorts of nationalities, um, colours, and creeds. To be honest, and uh, and that's what makes it a really interesting place to work. You know, it's quite a diverse a, a diverse company.
0: Great stuff. So, what um, what corps were you in uh, when you were in the uh, British Army?
2: Well, I, I served in the Royal Electrical and Me- Mechanical Engineers. Um, so I was sort of looking after, um, equipment, um, and, uh, supporting the army's equipment. I, I, um, did a lot of work with sort of armoured brigades and tanks and things. Um, but also I was trained as a staff officer. So, um, you know, I had general staff appointments. I worked in Whitehall and the Ministry of Defence, um, worked in uh, various different headquarters and on operations as well, supporting, um, um, units leading, you know, our soldiers who were keeping the... Equipment in the in the hands of the uh, of, of the army's users, basically. So that yeah, right. was a really interesting, really interesting experience.
0: Sounds like the uh, the, the perfect background for uh, someone moving into a leadership position in uh, in the energy industry.
2: Yeah, it was. I mean, to be honest, it, it was uh, it was a great sort of uh, apprenticeship for that in some respects, <laughs> uh, because uh, you know there's a lot of engineering we do in the in the power industry. Uh, there's a lot of great people in it and uh, there's a lot of need for change and transformation and that all needs leadership and engineering and uh, and certainly that that the experience I had in the military stood me in great stead you know in civilian life and uh, it was the right decision to make the move I think
0: yeah well that's interesting because one of the first things I wanted to speak to you about David is uh is really it's about people um and about the just transition now obviously uniper is uh, a Fossil fuel company with, with uh, fossil fuel generation company with, with renewables, but you have a great many uh, fossil fuel uh, plants, including coal plants, throughout Europe. Um, and you know within uh, mine Adam's circles, you know coal has got a, a very bad name, and you know it's class is quite evil, and we need to close all the power stations down as soon as we can. Um, and there's obviously. Uh, more to discuss than simply turning off a switch and shutting a power plant. Uh, and I'd be really interested in getting uh, some background on you on what it's like to close a coal-fired power station, what the stages you have to go through are, what you need to think about the people you've got, the communities, the places, um, as well as the environmental impact of, uh, you know, potential future running of that and the, the trade-offs you need to make? Mm.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, first of all, it's, it's not a simple decision to just choose to close a power station, any power station, whatever its fuel sources. Uh, there are lots of stakeholders that are involved in that decision-making and quite often, to be honest, when we've tried to close, Coal-fired power stations, we've not been able to, mm. <laughs> because the, the system operator or the or, or the the government body that's responsible says, well, actually, uh, we'd rather you didn't at the moment because w- we we need that for a guarantee of security of supply, mm-hmm. and um, and I think that that's something that that escapes many people. It's a very complicated system, the energy system. Um, it's not controlled by one organisation uh, per se. There's lots of the factors that go into ensuring that it's stable and it delivers the power when people need it in their homes, in hospitals, in factories. So, so, so making the decision itself is often not just a purely commercial decision. Um, it's lots of other factors. And one of those important factors there is obviously people. Um, we don't keep power stations open just for the sake of people, obviously. We, we keep them open for commercial benefit. We're a yep. commercial company um, and for providing things like security of supply. But what's really important is that when we make a decision is that we really look after the people that are affected by that closure. Um, and that means not just the people that work for us. We also have to consider the, the the people that live around the power station, the companies that benefit from the power station being there, the society locally. You know, you have to look at all those stakeholders and think, how do we achieve a transition here, which is right and proper and um, potentially, still give some hope for the future for our colleagues, but also for the local community, because many of them depend upon these power stations. Um, yeah, that's the nature of.
0: Um, um, it have- one of the interesting things I found is that is that a lot of the new technology stuff, you know, the 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 um, wind farms and the solar farms and that simply don't need the person power that the uh, retiring uh, coal plants and gas plants perhaps need as well. So you know, the, there's a natural uh, kind of drain on uh, job opportunities within the within the industry going forward.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Although, to be fair as well, if I look back and think about the power station that I was responsible for in the UK, which was Ironbridge power station, I think when it was when it was opened in 1967, which was the year I was born, um, they had 400 members of staff. Mm. Uh, when I took over the responsibility for the power station in 2010, um, we had just under 100, mm-hmm. and we still operated the same units. So actually we'd, we'd learned to reduce the number of staff that we needed in order to operate the asset with things like automation and control systems. But also, you know, we we outsourced a lot of things. So we had contractors. So it's not just the people that you've got on site. There's a lot of contractors that come in to support these sites And then you know what do they do? They go to the local hotels, they stop there overnight, they put money into the local economy, they go to the pubs, they, you know, they buy food, etc., etc., etc. So it can have quite a significant impact on the local community, even if you've only got you know 100 people working at site. That can create a hole locally. So somehow you've got to sort of explain what you're doing and 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 try and find opportunities for the future. You can't always, you can't always do that, Um, but that's what we try to do.
0: Now, in in Germany, um, you uh, well, you just to give our, our listeners a, a bit of background. Um, I, I'm on the the lead group for Climate Action 100 Plus with Unipus, so that's how David and I uh, met uh, originally. And in our last call, you took us through how the German kind of reverse auction process works, and uh, you can basically pitch for having your plants closed. And it's of note that uh, a very modern uh, plant uh, held by Vattenfall, I I don't expect you to be able to comment on that because it's uh, not your plant, but a very modern plant uh, from Vattenfall was uh, recently accepted into that scheme despite Mm. only being a few years old, Uh, much to the dismay of people that would rather see older, less efficient plants uh, uh, retired. Um, So it it would be good for our listeners, I think, if, if you could take us through that process um, that the Germans uh, are looking at for the uh, closure of plants. And if you could maybe um, contrast that with how you do things in the the UK, and we'll maybe talk about uh, uh, the Netherlands uh, a little after that.
2: Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, the Germans have taken an approach which is is – it's different to, to other countries in some respects. And in fact, you have to think of Germany as having hard coal and brown coal. So lignite coal, mm-hmm. surface mine coal. And, and there's a large amount of power that's still provided in Germany by lignite coal, lignite brown coal. It's um, it tends to run a lot more because it's, it's cheaper to, to, to operate than hard coal. Um, and of course, from a social perspective inside the the country, and I know David, I've heard you say before at some of your podcasts that you you grew up in a, an ex-mining town in the UK. Yeah. Well, these lignite mines, you know, they employ hundreds of, of men and women at these lignite mines, and that feeds the coal coal-fired power stations, if you like, that then provide power to to Germany. So the uh, the German government has decided to to phase out that lignite coal-fired power by 2038, um, which is quite long for, for some people, I think, you know, particularly those people who are pushing hard on, on climate change. Um, and and um, for hard coal firepower stations, they said, we'll we'll take a different approach. We'll auction out. So we'll allow people to submit their assets for auction. They put a price in and they see if they're uh, wanted uh, to remo- be removed from the grid. And then the operator gets some money for doing that, which helps offset the cost of closure, etc., and also for the employees, they if they go for this process, then they get a, a, something called an passel's guilt, which is an opportunity to bridge, you know, sort of their position in terms of how they're paid and maybe pensions later. Mm-hmm. So it's also good for the employees if you can secure um, an auction, an auction win. So there's two different two different approaches, and um, we've made it quite clear actually. We said we we've got a, a target of. Being um, you know, net zero in in our European generation fleet by 2035, which is a challenge for us because of some assets going on longer than that. So we have to address that, and we're working on that. Um, but we've also set out a target for the hard coal, other hard coal plants other than Mass Masflakta 3 and Dappen 4, to sort of close those out by 2025. So we we will also um, go through the auction process for these assets, and we've done that recently with some, and been successful. And and that helps us cope with that closure, helps us try and create new opportunities on the site, but also gives some support to our employees who maybe aren't going to work again and are going to go to retirement, and it gives them some support by the state as well, which is quite helpful for them. So it's quite a good thing for us to, to use the auction process. But it's very different to, to elsewhere. If I look to the UK, um, I mean, I think you've seen the UK government just announced 2024 as a, as a closure. Yeah. And, and so we're closing 2024 and, and there what we're doing is working at the site, um, in this case, Ratcliffe Bar Station in Nottinghamshire, you know, working with local stakeholders, local councils, local sort of enterprise initiatives to try and create our business opportunities at the site, which will help the, the site be used and redeveloped in a, from a business perspective, potentially for energy, maybe for other things, um, so that that gives opportunities for employment for our staff. Um, and also for others and plays another, uh, you know, broader contribution to the community. It might be that we don't operate any of those things there at the end that other people do. That's fine, but at least we're doing it in a socially responsible way. So two very different approaches, very much more sort of state support, if you like, in Germany and UK,
1: a bit different. Which one do you think is most effective in terms of actually transitioning the workforces, the communities that you've been talking about?
2: I mean, I think they've got pros and they both got pros and cons. I'd say that the the support from the state, um, you know, obviously that helps. It helps the colleagues, particularly, I think really helps the colleagues because it gives them that sense of security. And you you don't quite get that as much, I think, in the UK approach. Uh, So from that perspective, I think that's better. So it's better from a social perspective for the for the colleagues that are there and are affected. Um, from a company perspective, of course, it, you know, it takes the pain out of what you're doing because these have been significant investments. I mean, on the older assets, you'll have hopefully you've got your investment back by the time you get to do this. But they're not all they're not all like that. And sometimes there's a cost that comes with it. And so you have to bear that. And, and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to help offset that cost to industry. But, um, you know, I think as long as then companies do the right thing with that money and try and develop the sites and try and help. Colleagues and try and help the, 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 the communities. Then that's a good thing to do. So from that perspective, probably the German system is more supportive.
0: Yeah, and that that German system is not a and not not necessarily a source of profit. It's a a, a source of support in you doing yeah. this uh, this task. Um, so Uniper have uh, recently brought to market what what I believe will probably be the last new coal power station in Europe, Uh, and I'm certain uh, that a lot of uh, uh, my colleagues uh, uh, hope the same. Um, But, you know, I think to a lot of us outside the industry, um, it looked like sheer madness to be opening a a coal power station in, uh, you know, 2019 slash 2020. Perhaps uh, you could take us through, because I do know some of the detail, but it it would be better... Coming from yeah. you, the, the, the need for that power station may be against a, a backdrop of uh, shuttering uh, nuclear uh, in, uh, in Germany.
2: Well, I mean, I think you bring a different dimension when you talk about the nuclear piece as well. And that's a very different topic and, and probably wise for me not to not, not to discuss that. Um, I think, you know, that clearly was a politically driven decision uh, when it was taken for various different reasons. Yes, agreed. Um, and um, and so, you know, let's put that to one side maybe. But if you look at Datum 4, um, where are we? I just said to you that there's a there's a coal exit program that takes us to 2038, okay, um, uh, an assessment done, you know, by the state and by the relevant authorities that says this is what capacity we need. So I suppose from their perspective, do you operate, as you just said, probably the most efficient hard coal asset, uh, which is more environmentally friendly than a 20-year-old lignite asset till 2038, and their logic would be, well, that's better for the environment, it's probably better financially for the country, and it's the right outcome, and it's the better outcome, and that's what they chose to do. That was their decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we operate within that framework that they set. Um, so, so you know, you can argue it's relative um, to um, the CO2 emissions of Daphne 4 would be relative to the um, to the um, emissions of a much dirtier and older asset. And that was the logic that was put forward by the state. And you can follow that logic, but you can choose to disagree with it as well. Yeah. Um, and the timing of the, uh, the startup, I think is what caused people some concerns because of course we, there were some problems with the development and the asset um, uh, in the early days. And that's why it was sort of slightly delayed. It would have been on the bars a lot earlier. Um, but um, it's certainly been a, a contentious issue. Um, and it's one that we... I also personally spend quite some time talking to NGOs about and understanding their perspective um, because I know it concerns people. Um, But as I say, it's relative to what would be there if it wasn't there. What else would provide the power that it provides? And that's the view that was taken by the government. And that's the view that we said, yeah, okay, fair enough, we'll operate and we're operating as, as we stand. Yeah. That doesn't mean that we're just sitting there operating as it is. we're also looking at what we can do around decarbonisation and reducing the emissions and et cetera et cetera. That's something we're putting a lot of effort into because you can't just stand still. It's not just a, a license to operate. and if you listen to the German state, you see that even now as we come to the election and there's you know the, um, there are political voices saying maybe twenty thirty is a better date, not twenty thirty eight. Maybe we were a bit too. Maybe we should change that in our approach in mm. Germany. So it will continue, um, and the op, uh, to be challenged the operation of all these assets and Dattle 4 too. That's clear.
1: I suppose my question to you then is in, in that context and given the events that's just happened in Germany, um, where you've had this um, major flooding and landslides etc., and a lot of connection being made to climate change how you can take that decision um, in a landscape where potentially you could see the regulatory rug pulled from underneath you very rapidly um, in response to a public that is dealing with a, that current crisis, an election forthcoming, and sort of, yeah, I, I just sort of question how confident you are that that rug isn't going to be pulled and those timelines aren't going to be sharpened because they they need to be um if if we're going to collectively meet i get i get the sort of thought process you've been through
2: i I mean i think i think you know to be honest we we didn't make the decision in that time frame adam so that's that's that you know the situation we're in now and it is you started talking about you know rainfall in Edinburgh i mean it's incredible what's happened here Mm. my heart goes goes out to the families and and the people and you know the people have have lost fathers mothers parents relatives I mean, complete devastation. It's un- incredible uh, to see it. And to be honest, I'm sat in Dusseldorf and, and um, I was in, in quarantine for, 20, for for 14 days while this was going on. So I didn't leave my apartment, you know, because of travel stuff. But I came out the other day and you can still see items of, you know, sam, I suppose you'd call it, coming down the River Rhine towards us. And it's a stark reminder of that. We didn't make the decision in that time frame. In fact, the decision that was taken by E.ON to to build this asset wasn't taken in that time frame either. And at the time, the decision was taken to build and to invest. Um, Some people had very clear views about what the future could be and and the topics of climate change. But I think we can probably all recognise, talking responsibly, that there were many people who didn't. Many clever people who didn't, but do now. Mm -hmm. And hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, So... um, you know, we, we have to find um, a way forward with all of these heavy CO2 emitting assets. Our, our intention in Unipa is not to continue to operate heavy CO2 emitting assets. As I said, we've set a target which is harder than anybody else's in Europe, I think, mm-hmm. who yeah. are, heavy, you know, fossil operators at the moment. And we're absolutely committed to that. And, and I was involved in setting that target. And that target means, as it stands at the moment, that we have to find an answer to that all because it would be very hard to operate it for the three years after 20, 2035 to 2038. And that was done deliberately to create a tension to make certain that the targets we set are close enough to where we are today that they're not someone else's problem, they're our problem, and we need to find a technical solution to them. And so, you know, that's what we're trying to work on. It's, it's difficult um, to have that discussion with some people because they, they really do see it black and white. And they think it should end now. Stop now. Let's stop. Um, And I can understand that logic and I can understand that belief. But I also think we start to see occasionally the issues that occur when things go wrong on the grid. And we saw it in the UK a couple of years ago when one wind farm went down, one CCGT went down and the southeast of the UK lost its grid stability. Load shedding started. Hospitals lost their power train lines didn't work, et cetera, et cetera. That was just a small taster of where we could be if we haven't got the system stability that we need. And we'll get it, but it takes a bit of time. And that's why I think it's not a revolution, it's an evolution. We just need to find the right time and, 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 and achieve it. Um, it. That That's the logic that I have in my mind as an engineer, I suppose. And, and I see that, that I recognise that other people have a very, very different perspective.
0: Now, to be honest, there was no natural break in this uh, discussion today. So uh, what I'm doing is inserting a quick break here. We're going to go to Rory's Book of the Week, and then we're going to come back for the second half in just a moment. Stay tuned.
3: Welcome to Book of the Week with Rory Sullivan. This week's book is The Decade We Could Have Stopped Climate Change by Nathaniel Rich. I'm doing this review at a, po- at a point in time when we're seeing huge wildfires in the US, um, the aftermath of flooding in Germany, um, a heat wave in the UK and um, with a nod to Adam and David, apparently sunshine has been spotted in Edinburgh. Clearly the climate is changing and the world is a very strange place for it. But uh, perhaps on a more serious note, we're at an age or or at a point in time when evidence of the systematic impact of climate change is is not just becoming clear, but is becoming um, almost impossible to argue against or to deny. And encouragingly, our leaders are joining in, we're seeing net zero commitments being made, we're seeing promises about unlocking or unleashing finance, and um, we're being being exhorted to act in in usually very excitable and breathless tones Um, now now this is all very important and encouraging and, um, you know, sort of, we, we should all be be positive about this. But I think we actually need to step back and we need to wean ourselves off this addiction to the big statement and to the the set piece event. And please spare me another discussion about how COP26 is going to to transform our planet and and save the world. We we need to knuckle down and focus on the the hard graft of implementation. The book that I'm reviewing this week, Nathaniel Rich's book, The Decade We Could Have Stopped Climate Change, is is actually the reason why i say that it's the 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 book isn't a a sort of a technical review on on climate change what it says is that what it explains is that in 1979 so some 40 years ago we knew more or less everything that we know today about climate change Uh, we had you know following that period of sort of scientific knowledge development in the 70s um, there was a you know, a huge political enthusiasm for action, even even in the United States. Um, There were international statements, there were gatherings. Um, We get to 1988, 1989, and the book, which is sort of effectively the end of the the decade it was reviewing or it was talking about. And he talks about, now let me turn to the page. He talks about 1988, 89, he says, it was the hottest and driest summer in history. Everywhere you looked, something was bursting into flames. Two million acres in Alaska were incinerated, and I note we are seeing something similar in Siberia at the moment. Dozens of major fires scored the West Yellowstone Stone National Park, lost nearly a million acres. Smoke was visible from Chicago, sixteen hundred miles away, and apparently New York today has the um, the worst air pollution anywhere in the world. The ambition. So this this catalyzes sort of a set of of actions and initiatives directed at taking action. Um, However, the conclusion was that despite all the action and all the rhetoric, we failed to deliver. We, we relaxed. You know, we, we heard that, that somebody else was going to take action. We saw these great instruments and, and initiatives and concluded we didn't need to do any more. It meant that when the inevitable backdash came against climate change or against climate policy, that we were unprepared for it, that we had not laid the groundwork, we had not taken advantage of the opportunity that the the crisis presented us with, um, and we had had gone soft in our ability to, to deal with the deniers and the naysayers. We need to be optimistic, we need to look forward, but we also need to take action. I hope I'm not here in 10 years' time and be mourning the fact that we had an opportunity and we failed to take it.
1: I mean, I only see the timelines shortening um, and I think that's the regulatory landscape you're operating in whichever country particularly in yep. Europe and, and that pressure. So 2038 seems very distant, 2035 seems very distant, 2030 is going to be the marker. Um, yep. and, and, and I can only see the sort of pressure being brought forward. I get the stability point and, and I'm completely, real, deal with the reality of, like, okay, what, what do we need to get to by when? And to me, it seems, well, what's the right package that is put together with states that can enable all these timelines to be brought forward, that can enable the the kind of decision making that sort of takes things off grid with alternatives replacing it and stability within the system um, and can really crunch those timelines. I think that's that's where the sort of pressure needs to be and the focus that can then support the transition of the workers and the communities that you talked about at the beginning. Because I, I there is a conflict there of sort of managing that in, in a way to avoid the kind of mistakes and legacies that you had in the UK when we didn't manage that properly with the cold close closures. But at the same time, dealing with the reality because the pressure is just going to grow um, dramatically. And I, I just don't see that timeline being feasible going forward.
2: Um, I mean, I, I, I also don't think that the timelines will remain where they are, Adam. I mean, I think it's a reality of life that that they will be brought forward. Yeah, that's bound to happen. You know, I'm convinced of that. That's why we're working very hard to understand what we can and can't do and what, what, what's possible for us. But also, you know, we do that within a sort of commercial environment. So we also have to be careful what we talk about, yeah. <laughs> you know, for all reasons because we're in a competitive environment. So that makes it challenging as well at times. I think what's really important in all of this, and we mustn't forget it, is that we often talk about these big chunks of metal that sit there and emit these things. And then we talk about, you know, getting rid of, of these things, which we need to do, but these things, these assets are, are run by people or, you know, those mines are mined by people and they have a livelihood and and their life in some respects depends upon it. And when they started doing that, most of them probably, what they were doing wasn't seen as a bad thing. It was seen as a service to society. And, and I think what we must make certain we don't do is you don't demonize these people at this point in time. Because that's really not fair. I mean, I I I've, i I can tell you, I've been in I've been in office, I've been in an office in the UK where we had protesters that came in and it was a very aggressive protest, and it involved people dressed as Santa Claus and dropping coal onto desks and, and doing it in front of, you know, um, women my age, you know, sort of 53, 54 years of age who were absolutely terrified by what was happening in front of them. You know, and when they joined the industry, they joined to be, to work in, you know, basically the public sector and thought they were doing a good job for society. And they, they want to change. They see that they were working towards that and trying to contribute, but not fast enough for some people. And the result is they're scared, absolutely scared and frightened by the actions of people who think they're doing the right thing. And their point is very valid, but there's a way that we go about it. So we just need to make certain, I think, as we transition, that we don't go back to a point that we demonise people. We, re- we need to realise that, actually, we've all got the same goal. Mm. I want my children to grow up in a world that's safe and safe from a climate. I-, I believe that's important, and I'm trying to work towards that. But I'm also trying to handle the realities of today and, you know, hundreds, over 1,000, 1,400 people who are affected by this in our company, and they've all got families, and we need to do that in the right way, mm. and I think we shouldn't forget that. And that, that's I, that's... I I don't and know you, you, what, I don't no, 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 it, I know you're not.
1: I know you're not. And I, and I, and I don't, don't question anything you said. And I, and I think that's the really difficult thing. I think it's very difficult for people looking which industries they're going to walk into. Um, and yeah. in, in terms of the challenge of recruitment, I think for those people within the industries that are needing to transition, understanding and the security of their sort of futures within it, I think is, is a real issue. Um, and likewise those communities and the, the sort of built around a lot of these assets that are going to become redundant and how you manage that and that's why the relationship with the, the state is hugely important and, and the right policy frameworks that can incentivize a speedier transition with the right kind of support structures in place so that you don't have that I mean unfortunately I suspect you're always going to have the demonization I mean there's that's starting to happen of investors in, into um, that still believe in engagement at work with one of the guest companies and um, that are transitioning. There's a lot of focusing on, on them as well. And so mm-hmm. it's that, that I think unfortunately is, is there and it's growing, but there is also all those other people that aren't directly employed by that, but are impacted by climate change and the generations to come and the justice that they have a right to also expect as well as the right. employees that have a right to have a just transition. So it's balancing all of different people's justice in the fairest way to enable that transition to happen as quickly as possible. Yeah. But I think it does bring us back to how you are also as a company interacting with your public policy interface and, yeah. and sort of driving the right policy infrastructure to enable you to transition as quickly as you possibly can um, in line with the with credible path aligned to the science. And, and I think that's where there's also a lot of scrutiny from investors on to companies that are you walking that policy interface and not delaying? Are you ensuring that you're doing everything you can to get that just transition, which I completely support you about. Um, but at the same time, you're not playing sort of delay tactics in any of those. No, uh,
2: I mean, I think that's also where things like this, you know, this TCFD and, and, uh, and these topics are really helpful because they create some transparency about what we're trying to do at the end. They don't necessarily help with the, uh, the approach we're taking on policy. But that's fairly evident because people can see what we're trying to do and what we're trying to shape. Um, I think the biggest challenge, actually, that we face, and uh, as a, you know, I think we face as companies, is that we're we're one of those companies that's that's a, a fossil, you know, a, fo- a fossil user, if you like. So we're emitting CO two. We're trying to change. Actually, these mechanisms that have been brought in place, which in essence discourage investors from investing in Companies like ours mean that we're getting significant challenge about uh, from from investors saying, "Look, you need to change, and you're not changing fast enough, and you need to change." And we're saying, "Yeah, we understand that, but this is what we're doing. We think we are changing quickly, but we've also got to sort of generate enough money to pay our shareholders, you, and still do a transition and and move across." And that there's a balance there. Um, and, and my biggest fear is that actually we end up in a situation where um, investors and larger investors that have significant impact on on businesses like ours will find themselves in a position where they feel so pressurized that they say stop we're not going to support these these companies anymore and then actually we really start to lose the ability to actually transform because we don't have access to capital for example we've got problems you know with our financial position and that for me is something we've got to be very wary of that we don't find a situation that that the demonization of people doesn't happen, but actually the demonization of companies happen if they are genuinely trying to achieve the transition and move towards goals and making that really transparent and clear. So having the dialogue around that and sharing that with, with investors, I think, is really, really important. So they understand what we're trying to do and they believe us and they trust us and they think that we are trying to do it. But it's still then tough for them because they get challenged, you know, by yeah. by their investors, for example, or by their policies and rules. And I, I, it's a very, very difficult one to square, and I think it's only going to get more difficult as we move along this path.
0: Yeah, Ad, Adam and I have have both been heavily demonised <laughs> in uh, in recent times, um, because we're we're not uh, hard enough uh, on the, the either the divestment campaigning or you know in the you know acceptance of what are currently probably compromise business plans, but they're we we see them as a first step business plan towards uh, you know a real net zero or actual zero uh, plan going forward um, and yeah i I completely agree on the on the issues around uh, investors there's an awful lot of uh, pressure at the moment to to decarbonize portfolios and to do it quickly and you know it the 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 divestment of fossil uh, heavy so large um carbon footprint stocks like uniper um mm. the divestment of that now says nothing about what what's going to happen to uniper in the future um and if i sell uniper stock now um that doesn't make uniper go away it just means that i don't have to count those particular uh, fossil fuel uh, emissions in my portfolio so there's a, a big um discussion at the moment that, you know, what yeah. while tar- targets are good, blind target setting and blind reaching for targets through just simply selling your biggest historic global emitters. And we are talking about the difference between the, the, the transition that we're trying to achieve and the historic carbon footprints yeah. that we're putting in our models. You know, by selling those, you're not decarbonizing the world at all. You're just saying... Yes, there may be a, a specific... I, If you believe that there's a specific risk in holding things that are high carbon, then yes, divesting them is probably a good thing. But if you're actually wanting to do real decarbonization of companies in the economy, divestment doesn't do anything. Like it says, the the solution companies are often the worst offenders at the moment. The Unipers of the world, the Shells, BPs and Exxon's of the world, you know, deemed to be the bad offenders. They're the companies that are going to be the best uh, source of decarbonization because they're the ones with the carbon that's going to hopefully disappear mm. over time um and it you know if we sell those uh, away, then you end up you know the, these assets and these companies can end up in the hands of res- uh, investors that aren't necessarily as responsible as as my organization as Adams organization um mm. and aren't necessarily putting the uh, the pressures on the, the unipers of the world to 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 change as quickly as uh, we'd have.
2: And, and Well, I mean, and, and I get similar challenges, but in a slightly different way. I have to get challenged by, you know, for example, NGOs, and they say, why aren't you more like company X? Look what they've done. They've really decarbonized their portfolio. And to be honest, nine times out of 10, the companies they quote, I'm not going to say they are, but the companies they quote, they did decarbonize their portfolio. They sold their portfolio to someone else.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The assets are still operating. Yeah. They haven't actually reduced the CO2 emissions in the world by what they've done, but they've made themselves look better and more attractive to investors. And and that looks great. But actually, I don't I don't necessarily think that's the answer. I really, we really try and avoid that if we can. We can't always, obviously. Um, but we you know, we're really trying to tackle the problem. That means you've got to close them. And that's a difficult journey. It's a hard journey and it's complicated. But I think it's the responsible way mm. to do it. And that's what I'd always prefer to do if we can.
0: And as as we discussed on the uh, the podcast with Mark Coutifani, I I would much rather see these dirty assets be dealt with in a responsible way by a large, responsible company like Uniper that we've got oversight of than them going into some sort of private equity firm that's just going to sweat those assets maybe even harder uh, yep. than you would be able to do, you know, without those things. Adam, you were going to come in. Yeah. yeah,
1: no, it's, it goes back to that sort of discussion when we had with uh, Mark Goodfani when we sort of talked about offloading one of the, the, the coal assets in South Africa. And it just, I was just kicking myself. and um, that we hadn't thought through a more sophisticated approach as investors, and I get completely why Anglo's done it. I, I don't, I completely understand. They're caught by all the coal, um, thermal coal um, screens, and they're losing investors as a result of that. And um, and it was, and I think they've done it as responsible as they could. Um, but at the same time, isn't there a better solution that called for investors to sit around with government to sit round with? The the energy sector in South Africa and, and development agencies to have found a path that says, right, we understand these coal mines are producing coal for utilities that are dependent on coal as it stands, and that we're going to have a plan that transitions the energy system in South Africa over X period. And actually, we accept that these coal within South Africa will support that power plant until we transition to that new alternate source and we ring-fence it and that we basically, as investors, stand with the company so that they're very well-run assets. We understand that, we make that exception, we recognise it, we see the path, we know it's consistent with the transition. and I, And But it calls for a more inventive set of interventions rather than sort of almost being stand back, make our point and then let things play out. And I just think we're gonna to need to be much more practical and proactive in the way that we intervene. Because I think in those circumstances, it should be perfectly justifiable Because there isn't an alternative and we can build the alternative, but that takes time. And therefore, you need to sort of manage that rather than this sort of option, which I think is the sort of not not the way that I think would have been ideal. So and as I say, I completely understand why I did what they did. Um, But at the same time, I just sort of feel that perhaps it's incumbent on investors to be much more. Um, practical and willing to sort of ride with companies through some very difficult transitions if it's a credible, transparent, and well worked through plan that, that can be backed and put in place.
2: I mean, Adam, this morning I was on a, um, a live a 15 minute interview in, uh, with Anders Blatt on a, an innovation program that we're supporting, and we were talking about collaboration and they asked me about the importance of collaboration. And I said, well, I think that in the energy transition, the problems that we face are so huge. There's no one organization, no one state, no one NGO, no one company, no single investor that can solve these problems. We have to solve them in a collaborative way. Um, actually, what's interesting is when you get onto this topic of decarbonization, quite often the starting point for that dialogue is not collaboration the starting point is absolutely diverse views, not about the end state necessarily. Sometimes it might be particularly about the way and how to get there. And I think you're right that we do need more collaboration around these things um, if we're going to move forwards. I think that's, an you know, I think that in some respects, the, the German example is a good example. They've tried to collaborate, they've tried to listen, they've tried to to, to talk to all different stakeholders to find a way forwards. Have they satisfied everybody? Absolutely not. <laughs> but I don't think anybody ever can satisfy everybody. Um, and I'm sure that it will change over time. But I think collaboration is key to everything. And we have to work, you know, we have to work with our investors um, as companies to try and find a way forwards. And, and, and we have to work with you also so you believe us.
0: I'm to do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk about collaboration again in a Dutch context um, because uh, the, there's been a lot of press recently um, about um, a possible legal action that Uniper are taking against the uh, Dutch government to uh, delay or, or cancel the decarbonisation efforts of, of the Dutch government and in that Uniper are very much demonizers they, they're just trying to burn the world and, you know, make coal power, you know, last forever. And certainly going from your conversation uh, so far, those two positions don't seem compatible. So it would be, if you're able, it would be really interesting to hear uh, your side of that uh, that argument.
2: I mean, um, yeah. And and your starting point, I think, is where most people start and it's absolutely wrong. (laughs) So we are not challenging the, uh, decision of the Dutch state to decarbonize at all. We're not challenging that we support it. We want to be part of the solution. What we've asked in the Dutch courts is for them to confirm whether or not it's fair and reasonable that having brought an asset online, that's got, you know, years of life, that, you know, it's sort of 10 years after you've brought it online and with full permits, et cetera, et cetera, from the state, et cetera, and discussions with the state that actually, um, that they can just close it arbitrarily and not not compensate the company and the shareholders for that loss of revenue. That's what we're that's what we're questioning in the Dutch courts. And then there's a second action, which is uh, international level, where we're also then you know saying that we think this is wrong. Um, we we're, we're, we're not um, at the moment. We're just challenging at the moment the principle that they can just arbitrarily say no stop without actually, you know, compensating someone for, for loss of revenue. So that's what we're trying to do. But importantly, and this is, I think, also difficult for many people, perhaps, to understand, particularly if they're not, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily in, in business. Um, we, we often find ourselves in commercial relationships, and commercial partnerships, where we are taking legal action against other parties, both of us together at the same time. But in parallel, we're sat around the table trying to find a way forwards without legal, without um, having legal decisions. We're trying to find a compromise and trying to find a way forwards that's good for, for all parties, a win win situation. But we have a backstop which is legal, and it's normally both sides have that. In this case, the Dutch state's taken legal action against us and other parties. They've done it as well. Mm-hmm. So this is commercially quite normal for us. <laughs> you know, we have that in our big contracts sometimes, but we have we have really good. We've had really good dialogue with the Dutch state, um, and, and we have good relationships with them. At the moment, we're sort of, you know, clearly they they have a, they're trying to choose their next government, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so that you know that, that's the situation we're in at the moment. But I firmly believe that we'll have more discussions and dialogues, and I hope we won't end up in court. Mm-hmm. And that would be great. Uh, that would be good for everybody. But I think it's something that we need to test, and that's what we're doing. So. Yeah. Um, it's actually quite normal practice in commercial life to do this, but it probably sounds a bit odd when it's, you know, with a state, which it is a little bit odd when it's with a state, but actually it's been successfully done recently. You probably saw Vattenfall, uh, received huge, um, huge uh, sums of money from the German government, um, because of their decision on nuclear exit uh, recently. So, um, I think it's important that, you know, when you've got. For, for any for any economy, I personally think it's important that you have some stability in investment decisions on large pieces of infrastructure. You need to have confidence that you, you, you're going to do something, make an investment, and you'll get a return. Otherwise, companies won't choose to invest. Yeah. So we're challenging on that. Principle. And, and the,
0: the, the transition, it's absolutely crucial that we have those legal frameworks in place to protect transition assets, um, the new assets that are coming on. I remember when Spain cancelled a lot of their uh, wind farm subsidies um after the mm. financial crisis and mm. that that really stung the uh, uh the the likes of uh, Vestas um who who saw yeah. huge reductions in in demand because mm. of that that pulling out of the rug uh, and the cancellation of uh of of, uh, of subsidies. so you know there ha- I agree there has to be a a, a strong legal Framework. It's very difficult for me as a responsible uh, uh, shareholder looking at this that wants uh, decarbonisation, but also, um, you know, wants to make sure that, that their assets, because it is shareholders that own the assets, the the pension funds yeah. of the world. Um, you know, and you're protecting them. It's uh, th- there's there's no I mean, easy I, answers. I, yeah, and, I
2: mean, we actually have a legal responsibility to protect them. Yeah. We have a, a responsibility as directors to do that. We should do it in, you know, it's a requirement of us in law. But, but let's not, let's not, um, you know, let's let's be honest. What are we trying to do? We're trying to we're trying to find a way at Mass Flactor where Mass Flactor in the Netherlands, which is in the port of Rotterdam, you know, one of the most <laughs> essential ports in Europe. Uh, we're we're trying to find a way where we can create an energy hub there that that supports hydrogen production, that enables hydrogen, you know. Um, green hydrogen eventually maybe you know blue hydrogen whatever that enables hydrogen to replace the gray hydrogen that, that that's used inside that port area I mean gray hydrogen is a significant emitter yeah. of co2 anything we can do to reduce the use of gray hydrogen is a good thing and that's what we want to do we want to contribute to the solution um, but as I said before to contribute to the solution you have to pay to do that and if suddenly you've had your asset life massively reduced you have to Take a position and, and and say, look, we we need to talk about this, and and this this can't stand. So it's difficult. It's not easy, but it's it's something we've we've said that we need to do, and we've it wasn't a surprise to to the, the Dutch state when we did that. We spoke to them beforehand. We try and be open and transparent about what we're doing when mm-hmm. we can.
0: Right, And there is the gong, and the gong means that we are out of time. Um, we. We have rattled along in this. There will be an edit for Rory's book of the week, um, but we've just chatted through that. So I'll just stick that in randomly somewhere in the conversation, Uh, but uh, try and do it not in in the mid-sentence and and cut you off there, David. But uh, thank you very, very much uh, for your time today. It's been absolutely fascinating. I'm expecting my DMs to fill up Uh, On the back of this, especially my uh, many friends at at Client Earth will be uh, emailing me after this. Um, But uh, yeah, it's I I thank you for being so open. Uh, This is a difficult issue for uh, all of us to deal with, and I think it's great that people on what will call, you know, my side of the fence get to hear, you know, some more of that nuance because we we exist in. Uh, A more nuanced space than a lot of people like to think Uh, and it's great that you've been able to provide uh, some of that so thank you
2: you're welcome now hopefully uh, i'll survive the wrath of the communications department and still have a job uh, by the time it's published
0: (laughs) fingers crossed fingers crossed well if it it needs taking down immediately you just let me know and we'll uh, we'll sort something out um but david where can our listeners find you are you on uh LinkedIn? Are you on Twitter or anything like that?
2: I'm on just on LinkedIn. I don't do uh, I don't do Twitter. Right.
0: Okay. So David Bryson on LinkedIn. I will add your uh your link to the show notes should anyone wish to follow you on LinkedIn and I will uh, leave it there. So thank you again uh, David Bryson. Been great to have you on. Uh Adam, been great to have you as well. Thank you Very for Thank you for coming in during your holiday. Uh, I expect you'll be straight back to the back garden with a a cold one uh, (laughs) and throwing the ball for riffraff. So thanks for that. And uh, thank you to our listeners. Uh, As usual, uh, please, if you can, uh, recommend this episode to a friend. Um, We like uh, reviews and we like five-star ratings, so please keep them uh, piling in on iTunes and whatnot. And uh, we will be back uh, next time with another fantastic uh, Guess so. Thank you again. Goodbye.